0: Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session.
1: We've all had children come in for checkups, no signs of active decay, but their parents stop and ask, but what are those white flecks on their teeth? Or why is their tooth all brown and speckled? Welcome back to What I Wish I Knew. My name is Erica Huin, and in today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Deb Wong, a specialist pediatric dentist based in Melbourne, to talk about hypermineralisation. It can be a tricky situation. Do you remove it? Do you leave it? How much do you remove and what do you replace it with? In this episode we cover what exactly hypermin is, how you explain it to parents and how we manage it in both the anterior and posterior region. It isn't always so black and white oftentimes it depends on what we have available to us. This is a great practical episode to help you think through what exactly to do the next time you encounter another one of these situations.
0: So I would say, yes, I can see these white spots on the teeth. What it indicates is it's a long word. It's called enamel hypermineralisation. So in you know, in basic terms, it's basically less minerals in the enamel of the teeth. It's actually a really common condition. Uh, this is more for MIH rather than hypermineralisation, but affects one in six Aussie kids and even worldwide. So it's really, really common. It's a spectrum, so you can get mild cases like in your child's teeth or more moderate or even severe cases where they've come brown, uh, where they come through the gum brown. What does it mean? I guess it depends on where the hypermineralisation is affecting. So if it's more front teeth, Then we can say, look, clinically, if it's on front teeth, it's not going to be too much of a concern. It's more if it's like an aesthetic thing, then there's certain things we can do, whether that's now or whether that's much older. Whereas if it's back teeth, that means the tooth is a bit weaker. So in basic terms, it's higher risk of getting decay or even breaking down from essentially wear and tear. So post-eruptive breakdown. So I think we do want to tell them and keep the patient, uh, the family informed to know what it is, but also to reassure them. That's actually a really common condition, and kind of advise accordingly depending on where it, where the location of the white spots are.
1: If parents then ask what is the cause of it or how does this happen, what would you explain to them?
0: Families do ask that a lot. Um, obviously, it doesn't change our management, but families usually feel a bit guilty or mums, mums are thinking, "Oh my gosh, what have I done?" And I would say, look. You know, there's a lot of research on it. We don't know exactly what it is. Uh, basically, it's just something that's happened in the first year of life. Realistically, it's also in pregnancy as well. It could be anything, really. It could be anything from a childhood illness, a little bit of a fever, you know, antibiotics for the child, or antibiotics during pregnancy. It's really, really common, and it's one in six kids. So again, just to reduce that parental guilt, but because whatever's happened, it's happened. There's you know, no reason to dwell on it. And there's so many possible factors, even, of course, genetics always plays a, you know, plays a role in everything as well. So that's a possibility too.
1: For what we've said so far, that's like enamel hyperminerization or MIH. What are our differentials or what other things could it be in terms of like fluorosis or what else
0: would you be suspecting or ruling off? So, fluorosis is a type of hypermineralization as well, but due to like, obviously high levels of fluoride while the enamel was developing. I think a lot of new grads kind of get stuck up on the terminology and say, oh, that's actually fluorosis. Fluorosis in Australia is actually really uncommon. So, I know some of the studies will say, I think it's like 23%, but actually when you look at the data, most of them are really, really uh, mild defects that, you know, the layperson wouldn't even pick up. So, in terms of severe fluorosis, it's really, really uncommon. It's probably less than 1% in Australia in the population. If you're trying to dif- differentiate between like fluorosis and hyper, you know, your common garden variety, yeah. again, it doesn't garden matter. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> they're both, they're yeah. both, um, we'll call it, falls under hypermineralization. So, the management is the same. The other one that a lot of people talk about would be hyperplasia. There's a bit of confusion between hyperplasia and hypermineralisation. So, whereas hypermineralisation, it's um, the quality of the enamel is weaker, or there's there's less minerals, or there's more proteins. Plasia is a quantitative defect. So sometimes you get the hypermineralisation, which then breaks down, and then sometimes that's labelled as hyperplasia, but it's not. So hyperplastic defects have a smooth border, whereas hypermineralised defects with post eruptive breakdown have a rough. Do you treat it differently? A little bit, yes, actually. Because the hypermineralization is so with hyperplastic defects, the enamel is still healthy. It's just less of it. So it means when you're bonding, it's going to be a lot stronger to bond to because it's just it's hyperplastic, so it's plaque retentive. So we need to restore it and make it smooth. But composite's going to bond easily. Whereas with hypermineralized defects, because the actual enamel is not 100% healthy, it's going to be um, the strength of resin bonding is going to be a lot more poor. So you might think about other options instead, which I'm sure we'll touch on.
2: (laughs) As dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what Dental Practitioner Support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country. Sometimes people call just at the end of a long day to debrief, but sometimes they call because there's more challenging things going on
1: that's what yeah, I wanted to talk about. We obviously mentioned that if we're going back to just hypermin then I think that's where we're gonna spend our main attention. It comes on a spectrum. So where it might just be, you know, white specks that are still smooth. I guess in those situations it's more of an aesthetic concern. Perhaps if we start off from that point of view if we did want to manage it aesthetically, what things could you be doing?
0: Yes. Yeah, so in terms of aesthetics, well, we'll just take a step back probably I'm sure – as a dentist, you know, most dentists would do this already, which is to make sure that it's actually a concern for the patient because, again, it's something that the parent would have noticed it and I'm kind of explaining, showing the parent. I'll also say, you know, little Johnny mentioned this before and the parent will, I go, no, 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 that's fine. Um, i go, like, yep, that's not a problem and if we want to do something about it, we can do it later and leave it at that um, because, again, it's something and I've had patients who've come through and said, you know, Someone else has pointed out these defects, and that has actually affected the child's self-esteem. Like they never noticed it before. So it's really careful how we we want to educate the parent and also let them know about these areas, but also not so point it out and say it's naturally negative. You know some for some kids, everyone has a different level that they're comfortable with, and for some kids, it's just a unique feature. Um, other times, obviously, the parent will say, Yeah, it's affecting their self esteem. And then that's when we go into the different modalities. As a general rule of thumb, as well, unless it's really conservative, like tooth mousse or something like that, it is better to push it out for as long as possible just because the any sort of aesthetic treatment, just because the pulp health, uh, the pulp is still very large as well. But balancing that with obviously how the child feels about it. So if they're bit more self-conscious, then obviously we would treat a bit earlier. Um, and obviously you've got to make sure the tooth is fully erupted before doing the treatment. If it's super, super mild, you can just use tooth mousse. I think that's more, to be honest, to prevent to encourage mineralization or to prevent post-eruptive breakdown. I know sometimes we say that it can help with the appearance, but probably on on a low, on only for super, super mild defects. Probably the ones you're mentioning is beyond tooth and mousse steps. The thing with hypermineralization or MIH is that how it responds to aesthetic treatment is pretty unpredictable as well. So the main thing is to talk to the family and say there's lots of different options and um, we'll step through the different types, but sometimes we have to. Often we're going to have to use more than one tact, and sometimes it's wise to set the expectation and say, "Look, what we can do will probably reduce the appearance, but it may not be a hundred percent masking the area. You may not have that, you know, full Hollywood smile. Um, obviously, as an adult, that's not a problem. It can be masked with veneers and things like that. But right now, I think just a clinical." or patient management tip is just to set the expectation, set the expectation low and uh, it's good if you if we over-deliver. You've probably heard of the different techniques like the etch, bleach and seal or like microabrasion, resin infiltration, like your whitening. So usually with easier defects to manage, they're more white or creamy. If they're more severe, then you're looking at more brown lesions We'll start with mild defects. So, in terms of cutting the tooth, generally that's a last resort option for a young child. So, we prefer more conservative options first. So, you've got like your etch, bleach, seal, which is you know using your thirty-seven percent phosphoric acid, some hypochlorite as well, and then sealing over it. What are you sealing with? <laughs> like a, f- a fissure sealant material, like a, um, a clear oh, fissure sealant material. Okay. Yeah, sure. That's most conservative. Then we would move to other options. Another option would be microabrasion where you're removing some enamel with a combination of abrasion and erosion. So you're either using pumice and hydrochloric acid or pumice and phosphoric acid, removing like the top layer and then just remineralizing with tooth mousse. So these are all for shallow defects. Yeah, just going over the microabrasion
1: again. So you were saying using pumice, just, Along with
0: etch, Yes. that's the, hy- the hydrochloric acid is going to be uh, usually a little bit more effective, though. But if you're in a pinch, you can use phosphoric acid. But you may just need more cycles of it. So pumice, phosphoric acid, and using polishing disc. So you're disking it off, yeah.
1: Would we be seeing, like, immediate improvement in that, or...? Is that just kind of priming the surface and then getting them to use tooth mousse regularly
0: to see a gradual improvement? You should see some somewhat of an improvement, but it's not going to be, yeah, depending on how, again, how severe the lesion is. So if it's a mild mild defect, you probably would see it. You should see it quickly. But then you want to, yeah, mineralize with the tooth mousse and just make sure that they avoid anything that's going to stain um, in their diet, like, you know. Uh, tomatoes and Coke and coffee and things like that. So that's pretty conservative too. Then we have like the resin infiltration option. So that's stepping it up. That includes like Icon. So you've got the hydrochloric acid again, then you've got like a drying agent, and then you're actually infiltrating with um, like a resin infiltrant. When you do that, you just need to make sure that before you infiltrate with the resin, that you're happy with the appearance. Because once you put the resin through, then that's the final result and you can't change it. When you say happy with the appearance, you may have to repeat the hydrochloric acid and the drying agent a few times, even kind of five times. If the lesion is full thickness, like in MIH, then resin infiltration, it's probably not going to be enough either. So all of these is kind of reducing the appearance, but depending on the depth of the lesion, it, it may not. It may not. Uh, fully remove the whole lesion. It'll just improve the appearance.
1: And then I guess
0: after resin infill,
1: then what would that
0: be? Um, So you can use that in combination with bleaching as well. So sometimes if it's more like a moderate defect, so it's more yellow, you might want to actually do whitening. So your tray whitening first before you do the infiltration. Is there a contraindication for how old they should be before you do tray whitening? Yeah, so again, the later the better. For me, I prefer kind of 12 and over at least. So with the whitening, it just reduces the contrast between the normal colour of the enamel and the hypermineralized lesion before then doing you know your resin infiltration. So the other thing is obviously if you're doing whitening, you want to make sure as many permanent teeth have come through. So they're all going to be the same colour. So even later would be ideal, you know, 14, 16. And then after that, obviously, then we're talking about cutting. Well, you can do like a resin composite veneer. You can do that without with no prep, but it means the tooth is more bulky. But then you do commit the child to a lifelong restorative cycle. Then following that is actually cutting into the tooth to do a, do a resin composite veneer.
1: So this is all mainly for anterior teeth. If we move into posterior teeth, I assume we wouldn't be doing a lot of those earlier
0: stages, I guess, because aesthetics isn't as much of a problem. No, so it's not aesthetics at all for sixes. That's more for to prevent caries or post-eruptive breakdown.
1: And so we would only really be, would you say you're only really jumping in when you see post-eruptive breakdown? Or at what point would you jump in and treat? a posterior tooth with hypermin?
0: Yeah, so I think posterior teeth are actually much, much more of a problem than anterior teeth. A lot of listeners might have seen like the child with the really broken down six and maybe not much other caries and that's usually due to MIH. So that's one of the hallmarks of MIH, that there's an atypical restoration like, you know, the rest of the teeth are beautiful and you've got this one bombed out six. And that's because that tooth is uh, was born, was essentially like born a week of the hypermineralization and it's had post-eruptive breakdown and, and caries and it happens so rapidly that when the, by the time the dentist picks it up, it's 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 kind of gone or needs really significant treatment. So actually for MIH of sixes, that's something you want to detect, anticipate even before the sixes have erupted. So you wanna look at some risk factors, including you look at the ease. So the hypermineralized Second primary molar is a risk factor of the sixes also having MIH. So if you see like the discoloured E's, then you know that there is an increased chance of the sixes being affected. So you should be on high alert, maybe seeing them a bit more often, making sure obviously the child's oral hygiene and diet is tip top. And then when the sixes come through, they're partially erupted. You're checking the colour. If there's discoloration, then we know they've got the hypermineralisation and you might want to start looking at, depending on how severe that that hypermineralisation is, is nursing it with some fissure sealants at that stage and tooth mousse. Yeah, so MIH of the sixes, there's a lot, you know, early prevention can play a big part. Otherwise, um, you'll see them at kind of seven or eight or nine and the teeth are bombed out and carious and, and terrible.
1: Dr. Michael Manikos. Dr. David Atiyah, Dr. Derek Mahoney, Dr. Dean Lyson-Blatt, Dr. Mehdi Rahimi, Dr. Amanda Fu Nguyen, Dr. Novnil Kashyap, Dr. Jesse Green, Dr. Esar Malani, Dr. David McIntosh, Kathy Metaxas, and Dr. Paul Homily. Do these names ring a bell? Presenting the Dental Summit 2023 bringing together Australia's most renowned dental experts and world-class speakers all together in the same room for the largest dental event of the year. Join like-minded individuals for two whole days' worth of CPD held at the Shangri-La Hotel in Sydney, September 1st and 2nd, followed by a cocktail gala night to remember. Whether you're a new grad or an experienced dentist, there's something in it for you. So in 2023, invest in yourself. Visit our show notes or the webpage tds23.com for more information. And just for Dental Head Start listeners, we've even managed to secure an additional 20% off. So make sure to use our discount code DHS20 at checkout. You'll find me, David and hundreds of other dentists all in the one place. So if you don't want to miss out, then come join the fun. In terms of restoring then, so if we've caught it on at a point where it's carious or there is a post eruptive breakdown of that lesion, And we're going to restore it. I guess a question that I'm sure a lot of people ask you is, how much of it do you remove? Because I'm kind of picturing this one patient that I've seen in the past where she's got a six and it's hypermineralized, atypical region where it's just on the buckle, but more closer to like the cusp tips there. And it's just wrapping around the whole tooth and part of it's broken down and carious. And you're wondering, do I just remove this entire chalky white outline or do you only localise it to the area where it's actually broken down or carious? How far do you drill? Do you drill until it's all sound enamel?
0: What do you do? So it depends on probably how erupted the tooth is. So if it's partially erupted, you might be thinking, well, this is not a great tooth. So we're trying to more temporise it for now, but keep as much enamel as possible so you might be looking at, um, you know, moisture control might be difficult. So you might be looking at like a Fuji, you know, a fluoride rich Fuji, like a sealant type of thing, obviously removing the caries, but um, nursing that tooth and waiting for it to erupt more fully so you can ex- assess it. I would say if it was partially erupted looking not not great at that age, you're probably thinking, oh, it's probably going to need a full coverage restoration down the track so like crown or something like that, saying still crown, which would be different if the tooth, if the child was a bit older, like fully erupted, let's say. Yeah, depends on how old the child is. How old is your child?
1: Oh, the one I'm thinking is probably like 12, 13. Quite old. Quite mm. old. Yeah.
0: Okay. So in that case, you want to do something a little bit more permanent. So if you're If that lesion is on the buckle, you want to bond to sound enamel. So you do have to remove a bit, yeah, the hypermineralisation until there is sound enamel. Otherwise, it's not going to stick. It's not going to bond well and then you're going to get secondary caries. On the occlusal, you probably want to do like a fissure sealant unless you look at it and again say, this is going to fail. We're going to need full coverage restoration with a crown or something.
1: In terms of like a permanent proper ceramic crown?
0: Oh, so uh, you probably refer to your local paediatric dentist and we would do a stainless steel crown on the six. So with sixes, again, as a paediatric dentist, we look at this tooth and we think to ourselves, look, this tooth, it needs to last a whole lifetime. So this person isn't 40 and it only has to last 30 years. It has to last 90 years. That's a very long time. And studies have shown sometimes kids with MIH on sixes, they have to go through, I think it was like 15 or 16 times more visits to the dentist than a child with an unaffected six. And think about the burden uh, burden of that to that child on an emotional level, in terms of costs. So we often look at that tooth and say, look, it needs something stronger. We need to bite the bullet, crown it, do that once crown it and that crown stays until that patient is 20 or whatever in their 20s but there's healthy and now more healthy tooth underneath and then once they're in their 20s it can get restored with a ceramic crown with their family dentist yeah they cut the stainless steel crown off yeah rather than you know say you fix it for a little filling now next year it falls off you're getting a bigger one or it's breaking down more bit by bit by bit you know before you know it in five years they visit the dentist you know, seven times to do patch-up work, that's can affect, affect the child and how much dentistry they need. So as paediatric trainers, we look at it and say, look, what's going to be best for the child in the life of the child and life of the tooth? And then also sometimes we're looking at extraction as well. So for, for instance, in consultation with an orthodontist, typically at age nine or 10, depending on the development of the second permanent molar, if it's so broken down We think to ourselves, look, there is no point in this child going through like a root canal and a crown now. That's not going to last. You know, it might last 10 years and then we're looking at an extraction and implant. That is so much on the child. It's not worth it. Let's actually take out this tooth so that the second permanent molar can come through a better position. We've got a second chance essentially.
1: I think that's really interesting and I, I find the comment that you made about children with MIH having to go to the dentist 15 times more that's such a huge difference like almost mind-boggling that it's that much and that does take a toll and a burden and you know I'm sure I've had patients before that come in and said that you know it's always the same tooth I've had it like has had problems you know for the longest time I think as you said kind of deciding how can you what treatment can you do to minimize that burden and that cycle of them having to continuously come in.
0: So sometimes I know it might seem a bit aggressive to put a crown on it. This is obviously a stay and still crown, but actually we're doing more now to prevent problems in the future. We're doing more now to preserve what's underneath rather than letting it break down bit by bit so that when they're an adult, there's actually a lot of healthy tooth underneath. Um, so I think our motto for paediatric is is like, do it once and do it well. And it might be to put a stainless steel on a crown on an adult tooth is often a GA as well because it's you know it is quite uncomfortable to to have to sit through but we do that once do it well and that's going to ideally last until the child's an adult.
1: What's the difference between doing a stainless steel crown on a 6 compared to like D's and E's which a general dentist would be able to do.
0: So it's not that general dentists can't do it it's just that first we have to talk about like differentiating between like whole crown technique versus like your conventional crown technique so when we're doing a six if we're going under GA it's going to be the conventional crown technique so we're removing all the caries we're preparing the tooth cutting the tooth obviously we try not to cut too much because we want to preserve as much enamel as as possible but you do need to probably prepare a little bit in order for the crown to sit, sit properly it is because the six is so posterior and the child is has such a small mouth it's very, very uncomfortable. You have to cut subgingivally. So even sometimes when we're doing it under GA, there's very little space. And this is when the child is not awake. So it's, it's quite, it's not, you know, it's hard for the bird to fit in there for a child who's asleep. And there's no way a child would be able to tolerate that awake in opening up that wide for that period of time. Sometimes also if the tooth is not fully erupted, you also have to do a bit of a gingivectomy as well, depending on what the plan is for that tooth. I
1: think that's something we probably don't always realise is that it's still erupting. Mm-hmm. Even though we see it and we're like, oh, it's fully erupted, there's still a ways to go for it. And so when you're doing those stainless steel crowns for them, you're actually going quite far subgingival to encapsulate as much of the tooth as you can. Right? That's right.
0: And the tooth will further erupt, obviously. But yeah, when you're cutting it, it is quite subgingival and um, I suppose what I tell families, it might not be exact, but say like it's almost like crowning a – the equivalent might be similar to crowning a wisdom tooth or a, a seven in an adult. It is right at the back, one false move of the child and, yeah, you'd cause an accident.
1: That's, that really puts it into perspective, yeah. It's like trying to crown a partially erupted wisdom tooth. <laughs> <laughs> at what point do you think it's erupted enough to then do a full like ceramic crown? Given that I understand that also patient age and compliance and their mouth access all comes into play, how well they can tolerate it. But at what age do you would you
0: say that those teeth are fully erupted enough? I would wait until the child has finished physical maturation, so in their twenties, typically. Hmm. Because of also like the gingival maturation as well. So you want to wait until then. That's why the crown is, I guess, the stainless steel crown is like a long-term temporary.
1: Anything else you wanted to add there, Deb? I think that was a really comprehensive coverage of that topic.
0: Whatever we do decide for the management of the sixes, the other thing you want to keep an eye on is also for the sevens as well. (laughs) I guess it's like a little red flag if we've got MIH of the sixes, there's a little bit of an increased chance that it could also be in sevens. It's, it's not that. It's not one in six or anything like that. But again, prevention is the best. or early detection is something that we can do even before the sixes have erupted. Beautiful.
1: Great point. I'm just thinking how funny that is when you talk about extractions and then taking out the six, so the seven has a chance to come in. But then what happens if the seven <laughs> also?
0: <laughs> That's true, but it's I do think a lot rarer. It's, but it's yeah, it's really rare. And also because we're on high alert, if it comes through, it might just be a You fish, can manage it. Yeah, it might just be a fish assailant or a small restoration.